You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 21 this morning. Matthew 21. We're going to be looking at what's often titled the triumphal entry of Jesus today on what's known as Palm Sundays. We begin and enter into what's called Passion Week, which is the week that leads up to Jesus' death and then his resurrection. It's, you know, it's a massive week, so much so that if you look at the Gospels, in fact, a quarter of the Gospel of Matthew is given to the last week of Jesus' life. And if you flip over to the Gospel of John, it starts in John chapter 12, and you can see the book goes on. So over half of John's Gospel essentially is covering Passion Week, the week of Jesus' life. So we can say the gospel writers saw a massive emphasis on this last week that Jesus lived. And so we're going to look at those events today. If you will, join me as we pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Sunday that we get to celebrate. You sending your son to this earth to rescue us. Jesus, we need your life. We need your eternal and infinite blood we, we need you to pay the price for our guilt and sin against God, and we need your righteousness to be supplied to our life. And because of what you've done, we have the fullness of it. Lord, you are the king that saves to the uttermost. Remind us of your salvation this week. Remind us of what you endured the last week of your life. Re, re, remind us that you never had to give up your throne. You didn't need to save us. You didn't need to rescue us. But God, you are a God of grace And Jesus, you are a king who saves. And you have saved us through what you've done, accomplished, and finished. Lord, let us remember that your salvation is not a one-time event, but your salvation and your blood is continually applied to our lives, that your righteousness continues. And that, Lord, we praise you that as you promised to come, you came, and you also promised to come again, and we can trust in your promises. Father, we recognize that there's so much pain around the world. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much division right now in our own country. We pray for the lives of those that are grieving from the shooting that took place in Nashville. Jesus, we praise you that at the end of the day, what we have is a gospel that brings peace and reconciliation in a way that nothing else can. So let us exalt Jesus this morning. Let us be reminded that you can take evil and turn it to good as we see in the cross. Father, we pray for those in our church family that are also hurting and grieving, and we pray that we would know that they would know that we serve a king who grieves with us. Father, we also rejoice with those that are going through times of celebration right now, and we praise you so much for your word. Speak to us, convict us, challenge us, encourage us this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dive in, a couple things that we're celebrating. First is that Logan and Noel Comer were married this last week, so where's Logan? Where, where are Logan and Noel at? Go and stand up, guys. Newly married couple. And after marriage comes babies. And so we're also celebrating two people that are pregnant this morning. So Sarah Clausen, the Clausen family, and the Phillips are expecting. So yeah, more babies. We have a lot of babies, and more babies are on the way. So congrats on making babies, people. Amen. Amen. 
Fellas, thank you for your contribution. Uh, <clears throat> we'll be in Matthew chapter 21 this morning, and what we're going to see is this, and I hope to what I can convey is this, is Jesus is the king who saves to the uttermost. Jesus is the king who saves to the uttermost. That's going to be our main point in what we're looking at. Let me ask this. When you think of kings, who are kings that you think of throughout world history? Some of you might think of Alexander the Great. Some of you might think of Genghis Khan, who is somewhat testified. I don't know if it's his own personal testimony or his own rumors that he spread about himself, but to kill over 10 million people. Some of you might think of Alfred the Great, Cyrus of Persia, Julius Caesar. But did you know if you Google kings from world history, the one true and only king who still stands, his throne still stands and will stand forever, that his name doesn't come up? So my question is, when, when you hear king, do you think Jesus? And when he rode in to Jerusalem, like we're going to look at today, they were recognizing him as the king, the king who has come to save. They are screaming Hosanna, which means God save us. If we look at Psalm 118, that comes from Psalm 118. They're crying out, God save us, God save us. They are looking to him. In John's gospel, it says he's the king of Israel. They were recognizing him as king. The question is, is Jesus our king? And is, it, is he the king and ruler of all of our heart and life? Or do we have a Christianity that looks more like Jesus is a little something that we sprinkle on, or he's a nice magnet we put on our refrigerator, or a fish bumper sticker on our car that doesn't extend to much more than that? Or is Jesus king? Is he Lord? Is he savior of all of our heart and all of our lives? Before we dive into this, we're going to have to start with something. Or else Jesus' kingship, him, him, him coming to save to the utter, uttermost, isn't going to have much significant impact if we don't understand this. That we have a massive problem. So everyone hold up your right finger like this, your index finger. And here, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to show you where your greatest problem is, okay? Point to the person to your right. Point to the person to your left. They are not your greatest problem. Point to yourself. That is your greatest problem. That is literally why Jesus came to give you a new heart, to save you from your sin. That is why he came. If you look back to the garden, what you see is Adam and Eve sinning against God. And what do they do? They do exactly what everyone did right there. God's like, why did you do this? What does Adam do? He goes, well, it's the wife you gave me. And then, why did you do it? And she goes, well, it's the serpent. He did it without realizing our greatest problem and our greatest threat is we are sinners who have rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And the guilt is upon us or the guilt is upon Christ. And so he came to take care of our greatest need, providing the salvation that we need. And there's many in the room who would say, I don't, I don't know if I agree with you. I'm, I'm a pretty awesome person. Let's just go through a real basic checklist, okay? Let's, real basic, real simple. Average American eats 21 meals a week. If, if the summation of God's law is love your neighbor, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, how many of those meals were given to your neighbor this week out of 21? How many of you have asked your neighbor what they need this week? How many of you have prayed for your neighbor this week? So if you could say, maybe I haven't done a single one of those things, and the summation of the law is love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love my neighbor as myself, have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Just for one week. Multiply that through a person's life. But then it says, to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You love your enemies. It's the first response to the person that flips you off. Man, I love you. I just want to pray for you right now. 
Pray for your leaders in your country. Are you someone who spends more time on social media airing out everything that's wrong? Are you someone that spends more time on your knees praying for the country? We're called to encourage and exhort people. That's what Hebrews 10 says. We're called to, exhort, uh, we're called to encourage one another. How often Hebrews 3, 12, uh, Hebrew 3 tells us, do it daily. Have you exhorted and encouraged your church family members this week? How about Ephesians 4.29, to let every word that comes out of your mouth give grace to the hearers. Every word that comes out, it gives grace to those around you. What about Philippians 2 that says, do everything without complaining or arguing? The truth is, we are lovers. We are incredibly in love with ourselves. That's our problem. We're selfish. If you look at sin to its root, to its core, it's selfishness. It's me placing myself as king of my own nation, of my own empire, and putting everything else in its rightful place. It's not that we have a problem with loving. It's that we love ourselves so greatly. And some of you might go, no, 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 man, I really struggle with guilt, and I really struggle with shame. Well, then you still spend a lot of your time thinking about yourself and all that's wrong with you. That's self-consuming love with what's wrong with you. We love ourselves. In fact, we, we, we don't want to at all identify with being a sinner or I sin against the holy God. So we've even come up with phrases and stuff like that to just make it sound better. Like, I, I mean, if, I'm not really a liar. I just tell white lies. What is that? That is, not, that is not a biblical, like there's no category for a white lie. Like that one's okay. For instance, if, so, if, I, if I eat at someone's house for dinner and they're like, hey, uh, what did you think of dinner? I've created a way that I know how to answer that question always. It was unbelievable. I'm out. We have these things that we create. It, I think the statistic is like around 90% of men are addicted to pornography. We'll talk to men, you know what they'll say? It's only soft porn. Created a category that always sounds better than everything else. Oh man, I just watch soft porn. I'm not doing what that guy does. People watching. You know what that means? People watching, it means people judging. Let's be honest. If you're like, man, I just love people watching. What you're saying is, I love to sit and judge people. That's, I, that, I do that. I, I really do. I sit there and judge people. I'm like, I love people watching. And what I'm saying is like, I like to look at it. I, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't think he needs a 44 ounce Pepsi. I don't. I, I don't think that I would parent like that. I, I just, I don't think I would. And I, yeah, I, we were just on vacation. I, I positioned myself next to the slides because I love to watch all the people run around them and just slip out because I'm sick. <laughs> the reality is, is we have this massive inner problem, a cancer that has made us sick within. And what the enemy loves to do is somehow convince our society at large that our greatest problem is some system, some government, or something else that needs to be overthrown instead of actually realizing that there is a massive problem inside of us. As Jeremiah says, that the heart is desperately sick. And so when we look at Jesus coming this morning, what he's coming to do is be the king who saves to the uttermost. The problem is, is we oftentimes tell Jesus to do exactly what we think needs to be done in our lives and save us in the way that we want to be saved. Let's look at our text this morning. Matthew 21. We're going to start a couple of verses before that, back in 20. You see, Jesus just heals a man named Bartimaeus. But in verse 32, he asks him this question, because Bartimaeus is crying out, Save me, save me, son of David. He's declaring, you, you're, you're the king, the king that is going to sit on the throne of David for all eternity. You're that king, save me. And so Jesus stops and, and he says this to him. He says, what do you want me to do for you? 
Let me ask you guys the same question this morning. What do you want? If you wrote it down right now, what do you want Jesus to do for you? That's what he asked Bartimaeus. What, what do you want him to do for you? Some of you want Jesus to help you get a promotion, help you get a new career, help you get a spouse, help you get a better marriage, help your spouse become a better spouse. Some of you want Jesus to help you get a degree. What do you want? Get through school to get a lot of things. What do you want from Jesus? They respond honestly. Jesus heals him and he opens his eyes to see an insight to what's coming next. There are those who God opens their eyes to see and behold that Christ is the true king, the king who saves to the uttermost, or he's just someone you project all of your wants on and treat more like a genie than anything else. Look at 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In order for us to understand the significance of all that's taking place here, we're going to have to do a little bit of a journey through our Bible. Because we have to remember, Matthew is a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience. And so there's a whole Jewish history here that we need to unpack to understand what is happening here. So let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and then Genesis 3. Because Genesis 3 tells us what happened. Man decided that they wanted to do things their own way and rebelled against God. And this is what we call the fall, sin entering into the world and unraveling things. But then in Genesis 3.15, we see what's called the Proto-Euangelion. That's the first gospel promise. And this is what Genesis 3.15 says. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Look, look at 15. It's interesting. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We have a promise that one is coming to rescue through the woman, through her offspring, and he is going to bruise the head of the serpent, and in the process, his heel is going to be bruised. This is how it starts off. We get a promise from God that though man has rebelled, he is what the Messiah who's going to come. And that Messiah is going to come and rescue. What the Messiah is going to do is rescue in a way that we ultimately need rescuing, and that's from the sin and the sickness that lives within us. And so we go on throughout Genesis, and we see in Genesis 49, we have this promise. It says, Judah, starting in verse 8, your brothers shall praise you. This is interesting because Reuben was the firstborn. So the promise should have gone to Reuben or then to Simeon and Levi, but they were all disqualified. And so then it goes to Judah and it says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. 
Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched down as a lion and, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter, look, royalty shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. This is back in Genesis. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. One is coming through the line of Judah. So this promised offspring, now we know where it's going to come through. It's going to come through the line of Judah. And the one who's coming is going to bring such lavish prosperity that it's going to be as though they're drinking milk and drinking wine to the fullest that they're drenched in it. So now we know this. It's come through the line of Judah. Then we, as we continue to cruise through our Bible, we get to the story of the Exodus. And then after that, we come to Leviticus. And you don't have to turn there now, but in Leviticus 23, 33, we see the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Boost. And what it is, is actually this. It's the people of Israel celebrating God's deliverance from them in and out of Egypt. And so every year they have this Feast of Celebration. And what they do to celebrate is they actually build these small booths and they live in them for a week to recognize we're not relying upon all these other comforts and all these other things in life. We're, remem we're remembering that God provided for us his provision. And so they live in these little huts, these little booths for a week at a time. And they're made of palm branches, representative of Christ's victory. And as we continue on through our Bible, we get to 1 Samuel 16 and we're introduced to a young man named David who comes through, comes from Jesse, who comes from the line of Judah. 1 Samuel 16, 11 through 13 says this. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. I love that. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forth. Now we see and went to Ramah. Okay, we're cruising through. Now we see something. We have a, a king who's anointed. He's anointed with oil. And now he's being raised up to be king. Maybe this is the Messiah, but we see that David dies. And in fact, he does some very non-kingly, non-honorable things in his life. Maybe it's another king. Well, we fast forward to this awful king. I would say probably the, the most awful king in the Old Testament because his wife was like the most awful woman in all of history. Her name was Jezebel and his name was Ahab, okay? Awful king, awful wife. God sends a prophet and says to this man named Jehu, he says, Jehu, you're gonna be the king of Israel. And in fact, you are going to crush Ahab and crush Jezebel. This is what's going to happen. And so in 2 Kings 9, 16, and then 13, we see this. So he arose and went into the house and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. So Jehu is anointed king. He's lifted that position. And then look here, verse 13. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. So they're taking their garments off and they're laying them down for Jehu so Jehu can walk over them because he's been appointed king. Then we get to Isaiah chapter 35 and it's talking about the Messiah who's gonna come and it says, this Messiah is going to do things. 
The eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the, <clears throat> and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. It also tells us in Isaiah 61 that when he comes, the spirit of the Lord, God comes up, uh, upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We keep going through our Bible and we get to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel in chapter 10 tells this interesting story of how the glory of God leaves the temple. We move on to Zechariah, and Zechariah 13, 7 says this, Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Right before this, it says this in Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Fast forward a little bit to 167 and 160 BC. There was a young man named Judas Maccabeus who was an incredible warrior who revolted against Greece. He revolted in such a way and led the armies of the Jewish people. They, they essentially praised him for his revolt and for the way that he led. And guess how they did this? They do this by cutting off palm branches and waving them, symbolizing victory. You go to 60 BC, and you see this awful man named Pompey who, who removes Israel as an independent nation. Then you fast forward, and what you get to is you get to Luke chapter 4, and a man named Jesus comes on the scene. First, by the way, his first miracle is turning water into wine, an abundance, a lavish amount of wine, just like we see in Genesis 49. But then in Luke 4, what does Jesus say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Chapters before this, what we see is Jesus rising Lazarus from the dead. Right before this, Jesus is causing blind men to see. We see all of these things and all of these prophecies fulfilled. And then we come back to the text and let's read through it again and walk through it carefully. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, pause, they're coming up from Jericho. It's a 12 mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. When you get about two miles outside of Jerusalem, you're going to come to Bethany, where Mary and Martha lived. And then about a mile outside of Jerusalem, you're going to come to Bethpage. It's about a 3,000-foot climb of, of elevation change. The Passover is taking place. That means that this city that's about the size of the UO campus, roughly 300 acres, swelled to about 2 million people, says the historian Josephus. 2 million people. UO has roughly 20,000 people on it. 2 million people in that town. What was Jesus doing? coming at, at a time when the, when the town was packed, when it was full during Passover because he was going to become the Passover lamb. And so they're traveling, verse one, and Jesus sent the disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So finally, Jesus has all of this planned out from eternity past. He's not shocked. He knows every detail of how everything is going to go down. In fact, he knows where a donkey is, the exact donkey that he would need to ride on. Why is that good news for us? No one takes Jesus's life. He lays it down accordingly. 
There is not a rogue molecule that is floating around in this atmosphere that God is not in control of. There is not a situation that is going on in your life that God is unaware of. There is not a granule of sand that exists on the shores of all the beaches in the world that God himself cannot number. He knows everything, everything. He is sovereign. Everything is planned out. It's been planned out from eternity past. So much he shows up and he starts saying, this is what will happen. This is what will happen. What he was also doing is throughout so much of Jesus' ministry is he was telling his apostles, who am I? And, and, and they would say, you know, Peter said, you're the Christ. And he would say, don't move forward with that. It's not time. Why? Because people would rush upon him and they would elevate him to a place as king. And it wasn't time for him to do that yet. So he had this veiled disclosure. He would tell people, I'm the way, the truth, and life. I'm the bread. I'm the living water. He would say these things. If, if you look back and see the stuff that Jesus said, he doesn't say like the prophet said, thus says the word of God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I saw Satan fall. I am I forgive you of your sins. He, he, he makes it clear throughout his gospels that he's deity, but never has he made it so clear as he makes it right now. Why? Because he needs the leaders to crush him. He was setting up the end of his life and doing it in such a way to where there is a swelling of people in a place that is going to create a riot. And what's going to happen is by them confessing who actually Jesus is, he is in return going to be completely crushed so he can save to the uttermost. That's what's going on. For the first time, the apostles might have been excited. Yes, you're accepting the title, son of David, the one who's gonna sit on the throne forever, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Yes, you get the title. He's like, yeah, we're gonna do this. We're gonna ride in Jerusalem. We're gonna, we're gonna make the announcement. I'm the king. Yes, all right, let's do it, let's do it. All right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to get a baby donkey. And that's when they would have been like, what? John's gospel even says, if you read John's gospel, they're like, the disciples did not understand these things. It's like, they're like, I, I, hey, I don't think he knows, you know, like maybe we should help him. I mean, who, who knows what they're thinking, but they do know they got to go find a baby donkey tied up. You, 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 you got to picture this. It, it's, it tells us in Mark's gospel and John's gospel and, and Luke's gospel that this thing has never been ridden. It's not even a tame donkey. It's, a, it's an untamed baby donkey. Go get it. I, I would have had some questions, you know. It says they did it. The significance would be something like this. You're, you're on the streets of Eugene, waiting for some big leader to come into town. He starts coming into town. You're all excited. You, you look, you see him turn the corner, and he's, and he's riding on a tricycle. You, you would be baffled to some degree, unless you were familiar with the prophecies of old, unless you knew this is exactly what was supposed to happen. They knew that Jesus was supposed to ride in on a donkey. I love what one pastor says. He says, there was no need to tame this donkey. The donkey recognized that his creator was on him, just like the wind and the waves obey him. So Jesus starts writing this lowly. Look, rulers like, like Alexander the Great, they would have a steed, a horse, something cool. Even David rode on a mule. Jesus comes in, not even on a grown-up donkey, on a baby donkey. Lowly and humble, your king comes to you. Coming in as the king who's going to save to the uttermost, humble. Look here, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble. This is oftentimes translated gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The king came, and the king comes to us. That's the gospel. The gospel is not get yourselves cleaned up and come to the king. 
The gospel is the king comes to you at your most broken, vile, sinful state and welcomes you into his kingdom, into his family based upon his work. Do you think of Jesus as gentle, as tender, as humble? Because it says your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Christ the king who saves to the uttermost is tender and he's humble and he's kind. And mixed with that, he's also fierce, and he's a king. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. Remember Jehu? And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks like Jehu on the road. Remember, these are Israelites that are steeped in Jewish tradition. They know what they're doing, and they cut branches like in Leviticus, like we also see with Judas Maccabeus from the trees and spread them on the road. They're, they're crying out essentially through their actions. This is the king. That's why John's gospel says, if you look at John, you don't have to turn there, but it says this. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're recognizing this is the king. Verse nine, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, remember, God save, God save, God save, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Why is it that though it looks so clear that several days, uh, several days later that everyone turns on him. Why is it that something could be so clear if you know anything about Isaiah 53 and, and how he's going to suffer? Psalm 22, that they became so blind because they do the same thing that we do. You created Jesus in your own image, the one that you want to worship and ultimately the one you want to help worship you. You see, when, when Jesus comes, he, he, he comes as king, and he comes as a servant king. Jesus here was actually getting somewhat of the praise that he actually deserves. And several days later, he would be on a cross getting the punishment that we deserve. They wanted a king in their own image. They wanted a person to come. Though they knew the scriptures, they were blinded. They wanted someone to come in, like Chris said, to be exalted and lifted up, to have an earthly kingdom to squash the Roman Empire, to destroy their enemies, someone like Judas Maccabeus, someone like David, someone that could come in and, and, and bring in the golden air, someone who is going to restore Jerusalem and Israel to a state again, someone who is going to rebuild and establish a temple, someone who is going to do these things. They created the kind of savior they wanted and didn't realize the kind of savior that they needed. Same thing we do. We tell Jesus the kind of king that he needs to be for us. We get a Jesus set basically adopts our lifestyle, our sexual ethic, anything that we want to do in worship. What we do is twist the scriptures, twist Jesus, and basically, my Jesus looks like this. Well, my Jesus is loving like this. Well, my Jesus looks like this. My Jesus supports my politics. My, my Jesus supports this. And on and on and on it goes. We create a Jesus that looks the way that we want it to. There's only one Jesus, and it's the way that God's word reveals him. He's the king who saves to the utmost. If he would have set up an empire, if he would have crushed Rome, which he didn't need to, Rome crushed itself. So is every other empire. 
then our guilt would not be atoned for. Our, our sin would still be a cancer that has to be dealt with. And either we deal with it for all eternity or Christ deals with it. That's what he did. That's what he came to do, to save to the uttermost. What Christ did is for the 30 years of his life, he lived a life in such worshipful obedience to the Father, but with eyes laser focused to the end. That's why when we hit Passion Week, the week of Jesus' death, he is moving like a warrior to the cross, moving to do exactly what he knows needs to be done. He needs to transfer his life of righteousness to us and our life of sinful rebellion to him off. That's what he came to do. That's what this week kicks off. He's saving to the uttermost. Jesus' blood type is eternal and infinite, meaning that when he supplies his blood to your life, there's no sin that can match the blood of Christ and what it covers. He saves to the uttermost. He's a king who comes in and says, there is no more guilt. There is no more condemnation. There is no more shame. I'm taking it upon myself and I'm giving you a new heart, a sinless nature, one of holiness and the love of the father that'll never run out. I watched Goodwill Hunting flying home from our flight. And in that movie, Robin Williams is having this conversation as a therapist with Matt Damon, who's Will Hunting in the movie. And he challenges him. And if you've never seen it, Will Hunting is a genius. And he tears counselors and therapists apart. <laughs> and Robin Williams basically explains to him, you don't know anything. And he goes on to explain why. You've never actually experienced life. You've never held someone dying in your arms. You've never lived this way, but he says something. You've never experienced loss because you've never actually loved someone more than yourself. That's our human problem. Jesus comes and he says, this is how much I love you. I love you more than my life itself. I love you more than the pain and agony that it's going to cost on the cross of not just the physical torture, but also the emotional and separation or the emotional and spiritual forsakenness that I went through with the Father. That's the magnitude of Christ's love that we celebrate on Passion Week. The King saves to the uttermost. Where do we get that from? It comes from Hebrews. Look here, 725. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, talking about Jesus, those who draw near to God through him. How do we do it? Through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? Completely and finally. Completely and finally, Christ is able to save. He's the king who comes to save to the uttermost. Our problem in life, and if you look at our problems from one extreme to the other, from the person who overeats and is indulging in gluttony to the person who has eating disorders, and who robs himself of food, we can say all of that is rooted in the same problem, sin. Sin. The person that can't stop thinking about eating enough and the person that can't stop thinking what food will do to their image. The person that works out so much they can't stop working out and the person that never does anything to discipline their body. Both sides. If you look at all extremes in life, what you can see is sin on both sides. Many times the people that are discontent, that are anxious, is because you are the king of your life who knows how every detail is supposed to be planned out. And if it doesn't get planned out the way that it should be in your little tiny kingdom, it unravels. It's because we take little baby kings, so to speak, and we put them into our hearts and we worship those baby little kings where we get to sit on the throne. And Christ says, I'll have none of it. 
you fast forward in our Bibles and it's like, you have none of it. You either get Christ as king, king reigning over all of our heart and over all of our lives, or you can be lukewarm and he spits you out. That's serious. It's easy to spot this in the Christian culture, the people that show up half the time to church. Church exists because I love me and I just go and I want to kind of get some of my needs met. This week on vacation, so foolish. I was so mad because a guy got seated before me in a restaurant and I told my wife, I was like, I, I got to say something to, to, the, to the hostess because there's this other dude there who's like, I don't wait on tables. He was like saying something like that, very cocky, it bothered me. Shouldn't bother me. I don't, why does it bother me? It does. So I told my wife, I was like, I got to say something to the hostess. She's like, let it go. And I'm like, I'm not going to let it go. This needs to be addressed. Didn't need to be addressed. So I said something to the hostess. I made it really awkward and weird. He and I were having a back and forth. Sat down. I'm like, I'm cool now. Until I kept seeing the hostess day after day at every other place we were eating at. I'm like, man, it dawned on me. You know why it bothered me? Because in Rick's kingdom, where Rick's the king, no one gets to talk to me or treat me in a way that is disrespectful or that I don't like. <sighs> Who am I? When the king of kings and the Lord of lords comes, his beard is ripped out. He is spat upon. He is whipped, beaten, ridiculed, and mocked. Also, that I can be a part of his kingdom and his family. Also, I can sit at his table for eternity. All so that through faith in him, he makes me a co-heir. He makes the church into a royal priesthood. <laughs> Think about that. When God looks at you and you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, he sees the perfection of his son every moment of every day. He sees royalty and we become co-heirs. It's like the movie Annie. She lives with this horrible person. We live without our sin. Christ delivers us. She goes into the Warbucks household. We go into the kingdom of Christ where we dwell with him for all eternity. And all we get to look at and say is that's the king who saves to the uttermost. And he saved me. That's why we rejoice. That's why we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to do what cannot be done, to rescue us from ourselves. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.